Good morning. Uh, my name is Russ White, and my wife and I uh, serve as medical missionaries in Kenya, East Africa, where we've been for the last 25 years. <clears throat> I grew up in Marquette, um, so I'm quite familiar with Uper ways uh, as I moved here when I was five years old. This morning, um, I'm going to look at a, a topic that is well known to most of us, um, but I hope it may shed some, some new light into that area. Um, specifically, we're going to look at the concept of being born again. Now, I sit over there in Africa and hear what's going on in the United States. <clears throat> and sometimes I'm shocked at what I hear <laughs> is going on. And um, it's as if Romans chapter 1 and 2 is being lived out in front of us every day. Um, and I hear a lot of uh, criticism of even to the point where people say, well, I'm, I'm not one of those born-againers. I'm, I'm nothing like that. Uh, because born-again has taken on a particular connotation within our society, in a good chunk of our society. And you certainly don't want to be one of those radical, crazy people, the born-againers. Well, we're going to learn this morning that if you're going to follow Jesus, in fact, you have to be one of those radical born-againers. Now, not the type that <laughs> the news is, is putting forth to us. And, you know, if I'm asked, are you one of those radical born-againers? I think I'd say, well, why don't you describe to me what you mean by born-again? And I'll tell you whether I'm that. And if you do that, then I'll describe to you what I believe it is to be born-again and share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, is that a deal? Is that a fair deal, if we would do that? Um, so I hope to challenge you a little bit in your thinking this morning. I hope to challenge you from some of the work that I do, um, and you'll see how that connects a little bit uh, into considering the whole idea of being born again. But before I do that, um, I want to give you just a brief update on what's happening in our ministry and in our family. So when we first went to Kenya back in 1992, we had uh, one 12-month-old son. <clears throat> and we had been talking about heading to Africa for quite a few years, my wife and I. We got married right after college. So she was, Beth was with me during medical school and then during residency, and then we had a child. And we had already, always, from the beginning, felt that the Lord was calling us towards um, medical missions, just not knowing exactly where that would be. When the time came to go, 1992, the time is there, we're ready to go. It was interesting. My wife developed a little bit of cold feet syndrome at that point in time. Um, and she said, you know, we have a 12-month-old baby. I don't know if it's the wisest thing to take a a baby into the middle of Africa where healthcare is scarce and where diseases are rampant. And, you know, I said to her, well, should we wait until we don't have a 12-month-old? Because we were expecting to have more children. I said, I think if we wait until we don't have a 12-month-old, we'll be too old to go to the mission field by that point in time. Um, 
So we went. We went trusting the Lord and feeling that that was where he had called us to be. Um, and in fact, during the Sunday school hour, we'll talk a little bit about um, hearing God's voice and how does one recognize God's calling in our life. Um, but we went. When we had to <clears throat> send that son off to boarding school uh, in high school, um, that was a big deal for us. We had expected to have probably homeschool throughout the whole time. And when we had to release our, our 16-year-old at that time um, to go off to boarding school, we were really, there were a lot of tears shed over that. Um, none of them by our son, by the way. All of them by the parents, as we felt deeply responsible. Uh, however, he had such a wonderful experience. His four brothers and sisters uh, followed him on to boarding school, and each one of them has had a tremendous, remarkable experience there, and God is grateful in, in doing that. So our family, uh, and in fact that son, uh, now has twin boys. So we are now grandparents of twin boys, and um, the Lord is faithful when we follow him. And the family is doing really quite well. Uh, all of the kids are... Um, all of the boys are finished with college and married, and our oldest has two grandsons. And then our daughter, who just turned 18, started in uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids. So we are true empty nesters at this point, um, and something of a change for us. But in our family, the Lord has been faithful to provide for us. In the work that I do there at Tenwick, <clears throat> I do... Primarily, my work is in evangelism. Uh, I'm sorry, it is in discipleship. Um, because what I t do is spend my time with the African doctors teaching and training both medically and spiritually. And I would divide up our time in Africa into kind of three chunks of time. So from 1997 through about 2007, I was doing every type of surgery imaginable. Every surgery you can think of, for the most part, I've done it, um, not being an expert in it, but having to do it because there was no one else there to do it. The second chunk of time from 2007 um, through about 2014 and 15 uh, was when we started the surgical residency training program. So this is our first two residents. Two residents, we had three faculty and two residents. So it was kind of lopsided, but their experience was good, I think. Um, and that was taken back in 2007. This is a picture that we took this year in 2022. And these are the surgical residents now. The program has grown dramatically. So every one of those in white coats that you see are doctors in training in various areas of surgery, including general surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, and cardiothoracic surgery. We also added an OBGYN training program uh, as well. So this is how I spend my time. Um, it's a joy to work with these young doctors and train them and teach them and see what God is doing in their lives. <clears throat> the, last, the third period of time in our life, I would say from 2015 to the present, I would call the cardiac era, when we um, introduced cardiac surgery. And um, by this point now, are the largest provider of open heart surgery for the country of Kenya. Um, this is our cardiac team. 
with uh, fellows uh, in training and uh, residents rotating onto the service. Um, so th this has kept us tremendously busy. And I, for the last these years, I do mostly cardiothoracic surgery now. Um, but again, with that focused on discipleship. So the Lord is blessing tremendously. Um, this picture on the bottom is our first graduate, Dr. Arega, uh, who's from Ethiopia, and he stayed on at Tenwick. So he joined me a year and a half ago as my partner. So I had been taking cardiac surgical call every night and every weekend for 12 years um, and until Dr. Araga joined me. When he joined me, he said, Dr. Tari, I will, I will cover call for 10 years now. I said, no, <laughs> that's a bad idea. I think <laughs> you'll be burned out quicker than I got burned out. Um, let's split this up. Um, and then just this past January, our, our next two graduates shown there uh, have finished. And so now we have four cardiothoracic surgeons um, taking care of the, the service and the department. And that's made a huge difference. We're also in the middle of a building project. This is by far the largest building project that has been done at Tenwick Hospital. Um, it is a dedicated cardiothoracic unit with a construction cost of about $34 million. Um, the construction cost is fully covered now. We've raised the money for that and it's completely covered. Um, this shows when they began groundbreaking in July of just last year and then um, moving ahead to September, they were already uh, establishing the uh, excavation for the foundations. And in November, uh, the building coming up out of the ground. In February, even further out of the ground. And in July, this is where they are now. So just two months ago, this is where they were. Um, this will be the largest unit in sub-Saharan Africa dedicated to cardiothoracic surgery and uh, we're excited to be a part of it. It'll allow us to take care of many, many more patients. Um, <clears throat> we still have a very long waiting list. We have a waiting list of around 600 patients waiting for surgery, and every week at least one of those patients dies while they wait. Um, so this will allow us to do tremendously more than what we're doing now. That's a really quick update on what's happening. Um, and I would like us to look now at this whole topic of what does it mean to be born again? If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to a very familiar passage, John chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me read this for you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, we read. Who was Nicodemus? Well, we, we know from, from biblical sources and from extra-biblical sources that Nicodemus was one of the Sanhedrin. He was a high leader within the Pharisees. So he was a Pharisee himself, like, like Saul before he became Paul. He was one of the Pharisees who understood the law uh, inside and out, understood the Torah, the prophets, the Old Testament uh, in, in great detail. Um, and he comes to him by night, clearly implying that he's not wanting it to be well known that he's going to Jesus. Jesus is stirring up a lot of trouble at this time. He's healing on the Sabbath. He is um, telling people things about what they must do to, be, to see the kingdom of God. He's telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's stirring up trouble, and Nicodemus wants to understand this man, but he doesn't want to expose himself. So he goes to see him at night, <clears throat> and he says, it's interesting what he says, Rabbi, a term of respect. He calls him teacher, implying my teacher. He's this Pharisee. And he says, my teacher, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, <clears throat> for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. He understands this has to be from God. Many of his colleagues are saying that what Jesus is doing is from the devil, and Nicodemus disagrees with this. He wants to know. I feel bad for Nicodemus in some ways. He really genuinely wants to know. And he comes to Jesus, and <clears throat> in good Jesus form, he doesn't directly answer his question. Because his question is, who are you? Who, who, tell us who you are. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be, to be born again? Nicodemus did not understand, and it seems that Jesus left him still wondering. So I would like us to try to understand a little bit what it means to be born again by looking at three practices in the Scripture and seeing how they relate to this concept of being born again. And I think when we take them collectively together, we'll be able to get a better picture in our mind of what it is to be born again. So these three that we're going to look at are the Day of Atonement, Communion, <clears throat> and Baptism. And certainly these will not be exhaustive studies of these particular practices as that would take us much longer than we plan to take this morning. So let's begin with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, and it still is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. 
It's the place where once per year the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the high priest and the people. Now, in the tabernacle or the temple, depending on when you're talking about historically, they were set up in a very similar fashion. There was an outer holy place where the priests could enter, and then there was the inner holy of holies, which could only be entered once per year, and that only by the, the high priest. You may have heard of stories of when the high priest would enter that place, um, they would often tie a rope around his ankle because if he had a heart attack, if he collapsed, if he died, there'd be no way to go in there for a year. So they'd tie a rope around him. And uh, it was probably nerve-wracking to be the high priest going into that place, knowing that you're entering into the very presence of God in this once-a-year ceremony. Um, atonement means literally to blot out, to blot out. So if you think of a, a stain on something and you take some paint and blot it, you covered up the stain. It's not the same thing as forgiveness. It's different than forgiveness. So this is a time when God is going to allow blood, and we're going to talk about that, to blot out the sin. The high priest would first present the blood of a bull for the atonement of his own sin, and then the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before he did any of this, the high priest had to, first of all, wash himself fully, um, completely, bathe himself, and then dress himself in a white robe and a white turban. So why all this ritualistic washing and, and uh, white colors that they were using? The white robes indicated that the, priest was a high, the high priest was a sinner like everyone else. And he had to ritualistically cleanse himself before entering the Holy of Holies. Blood was required to show that the penalty for sin is death. And that is a, a theme that is carried throughout Scripture from way back uh, throughout the entire Scripture. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, we know that we, there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. So blood had to be shed. Now, back in Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant with Noah. And part of that covenant was that blood should never be eaten or ingested. So when, if you go to a, a Jewish butchery, um, if you want kosher meat, it has to, be, has to be prepared in such a way that there is no blood in the meat. Because to take blood is greatly offensive um, in the Jewish culture. Um, because, according to that covenant, the life is in the blood. Remember that. The life is in the blood. And therefore, none of you can take, can ingest blood, according to the Jewish ritualistic laws from the Old Testament. If they did, they were cast out permanently from the entire community. Um, the use of blood in this ceremony showed that the life had to be spilled out due to sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read of the fulfillment of this ceremony. It tells us that for centuries, high priests had been sprinkling blood on the Day of Atonement. 
But when Jesus came, he became both the high priest and the sacrifice. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 9, if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll look first at verses 8 through 12, and then verses 24 through 26. Verses 8 through 12. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. He's talking now about Jesus coming. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then verses 24 through 26. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. The day of atonement, the day when the high priest offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, this day was fulfilled in Jesus who entered the Holy of Holies as the high priest and became the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Let's talk briefly about communion then. Communion is a New Testament practice, as you're all aware. Communion is the practice where, which Jesus initiated on the night before his crucifixion, in which we ceremonially eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. Now, bear in mind the discussion we just had or you might say it wasn't a discussion, you're speaking to us, that's true. It was, uh, but it was a, a remark, that this, this, this remark that you can never drink blood. You never can. That was understood from, from Genesis 9 in Leviticus chapter 20. It was repeated and reiterated and made a lasting covenant for all generations to come. So bear in mind that instruction. Anyone who drank blood would be cast out of the community. There was no atonement or forgiveness for this. If you went to your priest as a Jewish person and said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I drank blood, please forgive me. Say, no, 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 there's no forgiveness. That one completely f f forbidden, and you are cast out of the community. <clears throat> Anyone who drank blood would be cast out. Why? Because the life was in the blood. Now we come to Jesus, and you'll recall the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, telling his disciples that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life within you. 
This was a shocking statement to a group of people who had from childhood known that no one is allowed to drink any blood, much less human blood. The scripture tells us that many followers left him at that time and others began to plot to kill him. That was a real changing point in Jesus' ministry. That was the time when he was starting to be tracked and followed and people wanting to kill him because of those words that he said. What was Jesus saying? He was saying this. He was saying, due to sin, you have no life within you. You are dead. To be truly alive, you must take my life within you. In communion, Jesus was telling his followers to regularly remember that by taking the cup and the bread, they would remember that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross so that his life might flow into us. And finally, let's look briefly at baptism and see how it sheds light on the experience of being born again. Baptism, as we know, is a public display of a private experience. We publicly share with others that we have experienced salvation or been born again. We do this because the scripture commands us to do it, number one, because Jesus did it, number two, and because it allows us to enter into a Christian community that will encourage us and hold us accountable. John the Baptist first introduced baptism in the scripture, calling people to repentance. Jesus himself, you'll remember, came to John and was baptized. John didn't want to do it. He said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. But Jesus implored him, stating that he needed to be baptized as a prefiguring of his coming death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 tells us something about baptism. And I'm going to move to there briefly. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. If you'd like to look that up in your scriptures. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in this death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. When we go down into the water of baptism, and this is a Baptist church, you guys really like baptism. You know, that's a... There's a lot of discussions between churches. I like baptism too, by the way. I'm a member of a Baptist church. But um, when you go down into the water in baptism, we symbolically die to the old self. The old life goes out and we die. When we are raised from the water, the new life of Christ flows into us and we are a new creation. That is what baptism is all about. Now, if we pull together all three of these, the Day of Atonement, Communion, and Baptism, let's see how they help us further understand what it means to be born again. Poor Nicodemus was befuddled when Jesus 
told him that he must be born again. What could this mean? He said, surely you can't enter my mother's womb uh, once again. No, that's, that's impossible. Um, you know, the three, my, my, my own mother passed away two years ago. Um, about four years ago, I was considering removing my own mother's womb, which would have been a very unique operation in the histories of annals of medicine um, to take away the place that I had grown up in. But uh, we eventually turned that over to somebody else. But here Nicodemus says, you can't enter the womb again. It's impossible. Uh, he, was, he was befuddled and didn't know what to make of this. Nicodemus fully understood the Old Testament tradition of sacrifices in general, and specifically the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. He knew full well that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Just as the blood of goats and bulls on the Day of Atonement must be poured out, so the life of the tyranny of sin must flow out. The old man must die in its place. The blood of Jesus must flow in, for the life is in the blood. Jesus would soon introduce communion to remind us that the life of Jesus must flow into us. And as we die under the water of baptism, so we are raised with the new life of Jesus within us. This is what it means to be born again, that the old man dies, that the new life flows in through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are a unique and new creation. I want to share with you a story of a patient. You've heard the story of Nicodemus. Let me tell you the story of Nicholas. Nicholas was a 29-year-old who came to see us um, not very long ago, just about uh, uh, three or four months ago. And he had been having some vague chest complaints for a number of months and eventually went to a clinic when they became worse and worse, and he actually passed out and collapsed at this clinic. They brought him over to our hospital, and we quickly surveyed him. He was in shock and um, did some x-rays, found that he had a large amount of blood in his, in his right chest, and we put a tube in there and drained out uh, about a liter and a half of blood. We put him in the CAT scanner, and uh, the scanner showed what I'm showing you here. This is not a CAT scan. <laughs> this is an artist's rendition of what this would look like. He had an aortic arch aneurysm. So that is, as you can see, that's right where the aorta leaves the heart, and then it branches all these vessels going to your head. It's right in that area that he had an aneurysm, and the aneurysm was, had ruptured and was leaking into his chest. This is a really bad, bad place to, to have an aneurysm. Um, you don't want to, and if it's leaking, it's, you know, the, you could make an argument to just give him some morphine and, and leave it all alone because the chances of successfully fixing this are so low and the amount of time and effort and resources you're going to spend doing that is so high. Um, he, he looked otherwise healthy other than this, but this is enough in and of itself. Well, we took him to the operating room. We had to quickly make plans and get a lot of blood prepared. Remember, the life is in the blood, and we use life a lot every day in what I do. Um, we put him to, to get, take care of him 
you need to get him on bypass. So this is a bypass machine, a cardiopulmonary bypass that allows us to bypass the heart and the lungs and oxygenate blood and pump it back into the body, which we can do up to a certain point in the operation. But when you get uh, beyond a certain point, um, we then have to take down this whole arch of the aneurysm, meaning all the, ex the vessels to the head are exposed, the distal aorta, the proximal aorta, everything's exposed. So what we do is we cool the patient. We cool them dramatically from a normal temperature of 37 degrees down to 18 degrees centigrade. Um, that's about 65 degrees. So we, we make your body temperature 65 degrees. And we pack the head in ice and we all get ready. And when we get to that point um, and we need to open up the vessels, we stop everything. We stop the pump. So we take, basically take all the blood in the body out of the body and uh, keep it in the pump. And then we, so for all practical purposes during that time, there's no heart rate, there's no blood pressure, there's no breathing, there's no blood flow, there's no brain waves. I'm describing to you death. <laughs> That's death. That patient is, is literally dead on the table and we work quickly, and after about 45 minutes, we were able to get the graft sewn in and um, come back onto bypass. Uh, it takes a big team to do this type of thing. Um, many, many people in one operating room working feverishly around the clock. And you've got to plan on 14 to 16 hours uh, if you're going to do something like this for the amount of time to get him cold, to get him warm, and to get him stabilized. And then you hope and pray when his heart starts beating again that his brain has, has not suffered too much during this time. Um, this is Nicholas, four weeks post-op. Um, Nicholas did extremely well with this operation, uh, better than I could have imagined. And um, Nicholas was a Christian. Nicholas. So when, after his operation, I had, didn't, there was no time to talk to him before his operation. I talked to him afterward and explained what had been done. He said, I was dead. He said, yeah, you were dead. And now I'm alive. Yeah. He said, I've been born again. <laughs> he said, but I was born again before, so I've been born again, again. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're one of the very few people in life who can really say that. Um, being born again is a dramatic change in your position with God. Some of you might say, but, you know, I was six years old and I prayed at my bedside with my mother. There were no angels singing. There were no organ choir going. No, but something dramatic happened at that time. You shifted from being dead to being alive. And that is what being born again is all about. It's my hope and my prayer that as you face people asking you about being born again, that God will give you the, the wisdom and the, uh, the words to be able to share with them what being born again truly is about and that we can live our lives with Christ uh, knowing that his life lives within us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your scripture which always teaches us I thank you, Lord, for um, the Holy Spirit, which 
uh, embodies us and fills us. And may your life this day truly live within us and make us different people. Uh, yes, the old flesh is still there fighting, trying to uh, win the battle. But we ask you, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit be with us each and every day. And on this day, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.